Take two. It's Kandasha's okay. Beetle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 46, Ken Dashow, producer Andrew here. And the subject today, young Andrew, is the word prog. They called it progressive rock. And it's become a snickering anathema of rock. And all the hip uh, writers, uh, Chris Gow and, you know, everybody who wrote about music and Ben Fong Torres and everybody poo-pooed it as this, you know, bloated self-serving ridiculous and guitarist to be you know rock music is skinny people that don't have any real musical talent but are loud and angry rock is loud and angry and i won't define or pigeonhole rock like that and going back to what this podcast is about what the beatles what one band taught us is that rock and roll is all of that rock and roll is dizzy miss lizzie and tomorrow never knows. Rock and roll is when I'm 64 and within you without you. Now, you, may like, you might like a certain type of Beatles music more than others. People love Paul's ballads. People think that George's Indian influence is too weird. There are people who tell me they always skip within you without you on Sgt. Pepper's. There are people who tell me they skip everything until they get to that side. And the thing is that it's a living, breathing band. And as a kid, that's what sent me down the prog path of, I never could play guitar, but I played keyboards. I took piano lessons. And when synthesizers came out, I bought a Korg synthesizer and started playing with sounds. And it was absolutely, no two ways about it, listening to the opening of Strawberry Fields and those sounds going, what is this? That It's not a guitar. It's not a piano. It's not an organ. That's what those are the instruments that we knew. But what is this thing? And you'd read up about it, not about, ooh, he's dating this girl or that. I wanted well, to read the music magazines. What do they play? And it was this thing called a synthesizer. It synthesizes electric sounds. And being a geek who like builds all his own circuitry and stuff, I'm like, oh, this is this is right up my alley. Plus, I was into classical music and the Beatles taught me classical music because they have orchestras and Eleanor Rigby has strings and I didn't know much about it, but the band that opened the door to my world of really getting into classical and jazz was a combination. It was a, one of the first super groups, uh, the keyboardist from the nice Keith Emerson hooked up with the lead singer and bass player from King Crimson, Greg Lake. And they were looking for a drummer and it was Robert Stigwood. He of Bee Gees fame who said, there's this guy in Atomic Rooster named Carl Palmer you should check out. Why don't you jam, see how that comes out? And lo and behold, 1970, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer is formed. The, day, the year the Beatles stop, ELP comes to life, and I'm in. They, they were my everything, every bootleg, every show, every everything. Did you have a band growing up that was that for you? When I was a kid, kid, I didn't really have a band. I think the closest thing to it would have been Weird Al. <laughs> and and that's it, that's not unusual for because my it's generation. Because it's fun. It's fun, and the music is very good. And you also recognize a lot of the songs that are quote unquote new. A lot of his parodies are probably songs that we had heard before. Um, so I guess it would have been weird out when I really got into music. I think it became like the White Stripes. And then pretty quickly, Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles, Black Sabbath. And I went down that path. Um, 
But I think Carl, in this interview that we're going to play, touched on something about the parallels between the Beatles and ELP that I think is very prescient. Um, pop music, as we know, has always embraced the additional instrumentation, you know, the strings, the big bands. It's always been part of the pop music Sure, thing. Burt Backrack and Phil Spector. Sure, they always had that. Yeah, and so how how different is that really from a prog band? When you think about it, it's it's just the um, the way they're using those additional instruments that that makes it different. So, for the Beatles, a pop group, to embrace this, we've called it progressive before side with Sgt. Pepper, I think makes a lot of sense. And it might speak to the reason this prog genre, if we can really call it that, it's more like a prog approach, maybe. I like that word better. The way that that has endured over all this time. You're and, right. And I, and I like also what he says about prog being a very British thing. Yeah, it couldn't have been born here. It couldn't have been born in New York. It, it just has, because there's, there are classical strains, there's so much, if when you get into classical music... If you dive in, uh, Rafe Vaughn Williams, and there are certain sounds that are absolutely English and certain sounds that are German. And it's just a certain sound to, to your ear of how things come out. Uh, WC, you know, it is French Prague, if you, if you will. If, if you don't think uh, the rites of spring, afternoon of a fawn, rites of spring, if that's not Prague, you tell me what is. Every music critic in Europe went crazy that when that came out in the early 20th century it they i mean i think almost every headline review was the end of music civilization if this is where it's going it has come to a brick wall and that's why they thought about one of the most famous pieces in the world and in the uh, live yes songs before they go into a song john anderson sings a cappella sings Afternoon of a Fawn sings da 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 da, and I thought, yeah, absolutely, that's exactly what Rick Wakeman would be playing in his own right in the mm -hmm. 1970s. And I remember Gary Brooker from Procol Harum when he was up here, saying, you know, I played classical like every English schoolboy. I played classical piano, but I'm playing it with jazz and with rock. I'm playing classical jazz, rock, piano, and organ. That's my band, and nobody wants to hear it. Nobody, what, what is this? It's, it's, you're not a handsome guy. You're not, you don't have a pompadour and a gold suit. It's not a pop record. Don't know what it is. Beatles come along as, as Gary said, Eleanor Rigby comes out and you go, wait a minute. Hello. Yeah. That's a string section. Yeah. That's classical. Right there. Well, it's the Beatles. Yeah. But I've got strings. Oh, well, they sold 8 million billion copies. All right. We'll give you a chance. And he said, that's what happened. They gave us, you, we got a chance. The Moody Blues go from go now to days of future past because they want to sell, remember John Lodge said, they wanted to sell stereo consoles. So can you record record Stravinsky or something, record mm. a classical piece? And they said, no, we, we'll record our own thing. We'll get strings in an orchestra. We'll get the London Phil to do this. And everybody went, that's weird, but okay. Yeah, I think if you entered into it with no preconceived notions, I think something like Lucky Man... Nights in White Satin. Um, roundabout. Roundabout. Limelight, if we want to go Canadian. <laughs> yes. Eleanor Rigby. I don't think you would, you would say that, wow, these songs are 
wildly different. These songs must be completely different genres. And maybe even sneak in like some some big band like Rat Pack kind of tune. And I I wonder if I wonder if uh, if people would notice the difference if they had no concept of that music. I would want to build an iHeart playlist. If if they gave me the controls, I would do an iHeart playlist. And the only thing is, I can't figure out what we would call it. Do you call it art rock, yeah. prog rock? Do you call it music that doesn't fit? Do you feel it? You know, I don't, I can't, because it's not easily labeled. Right. But you can hear it. When you hear it, you go, that's pretty cool. Yeah, there there aren't a lot of musicians that can be called or, or would describe themselves definitively as Prague. It's always like, well, it's like Prague if you can explain Prague. Right. It's like, well, Prague, fusion... Hard rock, soft rock, kind of jazz, psychedelic. Fusion became a word that all music critics snickered at. Mm -hmm. That is not jazz. Jazz is this with a saxophone, and you, Ken Dashow, you asshole, listening to Return to Forever, I'd like you to know you're not listening to jazz. No, I am. There are just synthesizers in it, and it's fast and it's loud, and there's some screaming guitars in between the parts. And, you know, Romantic Warrior is just one of the greatest albums ever. You can pretend not to like it to be a jazz snob, but that means, to me, that just means your ears aren't open. That means you're just not listening because I won't listen to anything that has a synthesizer. Herbie Hancock was dead to the world when he started recording with synthesizers in the 70s. Like, but you love this guy since he played with Miles as a teenager, right? But simply because of the instrumentation, you hate him? And you consider yourself a music fan, jazz asshole critic guy. You know, like, how could you make that choice? It's like saying that, you know, it's the same people who go, well, Paul hasn't recorded anything good in the last 10 years. Of course he has. You just haven't been listening and you haven't been listening to what music is now. When you listen to Come On To Me, somebody said, well, you can't compare that to The Long and Winding Road. I said, well, of course you can. That was written in 1970. This is written in 2018. This sounds like a great song in 2018. Listen to what else is out there. It's what it's supposed to sound like. You write for the time and you keep going. And this music is still so much a part of it. Steve Hackett said that to us. John Lodge, when he was up here talking about it. And, you know, it's funny from Birmingham boys like Denny Lane, who is here. Denny was, you know, doing Go Now, Moody's Go On. And Carl Palmer was a teenager in Birmingham, England, before he gets to London. And another guy who started, I think we'll find out in the interview, Started when he was a young teenager playing professionally. How old were you when you you got the first dollar to play music? Oh, in my 20s. Did you th- ever think about it as a career as a teenager or was it just for fun? Um, as a teenager, yeah, I thought, I thought, um, I didn't think that I could make it a, a, as a, a career and I still haven't, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm around it. Right. So that's that's pretty good. Listen, you're not making a living at it until you guys come up with something or a song or an album that pops and you know as we found out and suddenly everybody wants to hear that song, that crazy thing that these guys called 100,000 are doing and then you've caught you caught a moment. You you've caught some you got some air in your sails and when that moment happens you may very well be leaving iHeart and go, "You know what? I'm on the road with these guys. Off we go." And 
if it's what you want, I cert I hope that happens sooner rather than later. But it doesn't mean the work you put in or trying to create music is any less legitimate than anybody else who's doing it. And I think it as it was for most of these guys, you're just you're just trying to make the music you hear in your head and you hope people like it, as opposed to what I hear of pop music now of you start with doing research of what's selling, of what what rhythms and paces and beats are successful and you you reverse engineer it so that your singer sounds like the singers that are on now. And, you know, it doesn't sound like there's a heart to a lot of music that I hear today. I hear perfection, but I don't hear heart to it, and that's what's missing to me. So I'll argue with, I'll argue with you on this. Um, I don't think there's ever been a lot of heart in a lot of the pop music that's been around. I think if we go through the number one song of every year from 2017 backwards— We'd be very disappointed. Agreed. At, in in the top five, even in the top ten, I think the fact is that um, a lot of there's a lot of great music out now. A lot of it isn't on the radio. Some of it is on the radio, but often that's not what makes it to number one, and that's never really been the case. I don't think. You know what? I, you're absolutely right. Which is why me and everybody else in my generation. And those before me started listening to FM radio mm -hmm. because nobody was listening to FM radio. Hardly anyone had an FM tuner, but that's where the cool music was. Uh, Top 40 was on AM and Jimi Hendrix and Chicago's first album with a seven-minute horn jam into a conga break on beginnings that and a, a, a jazz classical piano opening to their hit. Uh, you know, does anybody know what time it is? And they cut it down to make a pop single, but a double album, debut album of jazz and classical with lots of horns. That's amazing stuff. And that was only being played on FM radio. And then the world kind of grabbed it. The world came our way. And people say, what happened? Like, well, FM rock radio became the bank as opposed to the, the weird thing at night and you had to have an antenna to get it. It became standard. That became the money, and when it became the money, so now the groups that came along of Foreigner and Sticks and the bands of the 70s and 80s go, guys, there's big money here, and we need hits. Bruce Springsteen, you know, the first out, if you stayed on that path of uh, Greetings from Asbury Park and The Wild and the Innocent and Darkness, those are gorgeous albums and Dylan-esque elegiac poems. That wasn't going to make the cash that Born to Run did, and he could have kept on making records, but it, he wasn't going to get the money or the backing that CBS comes up with till you come up with Born to Run, a bona fide hit, and now you're doing world tours. You know, one thing leads to another, and I think it's the hardest thing for the U2s and the Bruce Springsteen's of the world is how do you play your monster hits? You have to because you're playing these stadiums and everybody's living very comfortably, and it's a lovely life, but still kind of play some cool stuff that you love and, you know, keep things alive for the people who didn't necessarily come to see Born to Run. 90% mm -hmm. of them come, like Billy Joel doing Piano Man every month. People come for the hits, but there's that group that you still don't want them to feel left out to play that cool song, at least a few for them. Yeah. So Carl Palmer, on his collection, his tribute, his ELP legacy, is not just playing the hits with his new band, but he's going... Deep off the back wall, he's playing Takata. He's playing Knife Edge, which I, that's an ELP fan song. The average person knows Lucky Man and might know Carnival 9. You don't know Knife Edge, and that's for us. And he's even reaching back 
to King Crimson and playing 21st Century Schizoid Man for Greg. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. I want to hear him dissect it and talk some Beatles. Yeah, getting his his unfiltered opinion on Ringo is <laughs> worth the listen alone. All right. It's Ken Dasha's Beatles Revolution with Carl Palmer. Carl Palmer with us in this studio. A dear friend, welcome back to New York City. Nice to be back, Ken. Nice to see you. You're looking very dapper today, by the way. Oh, thank you very much, sir. You're welcome, you're welcome. This we're... is radio, so I thought I'd better tell them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my wife's birthday, so I dress oh. up. God, I always go shopping when we go to London for the halls. Carnaby yes. Street, that little store where the faces, small faces, always got oh, their yeah, funky yeah. jackets. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's still there, and it's the only If you can make yeah. me look good, then you know how to yeah, make yeah. clothes. It's... Actually, uh, where Carnaby Street is, one street over Kingley Street was where I had my first audition when I was 15. I left Birmingham, which is about 120 miles north, came down to London, and that's where I had my audition. Left home on the Sunday, had the audition on the Wednesday with Chris Farlow, the singer. Really? Yeah. And when did you first get the crazy world of a brown? Uh, that was after I'd been with Chris Farlow. Chris Farlow was a singer, soul singer, had a hit with Out of Time, written by Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. Right. So that was that. And that was a number one for him. So I joined his band, the Thunderbirds. Within a couple of years of being with that band, I had a phone call asking me if I'd like to play on a session. I never did sessions because I wasn't a hired gun like that. You know, I didn't want to do too much of that. Anyway, I decided to pick this one session up and it was with Arthur Brown. And the rest is history. And off we went. <laughs> a man with his head on fire. Yeah. You want to talk about, you know, they use the phrase like a trial by fire. Yes. In a, every yeah. literal sense of the yeah, word. Yeah, and we, we did well. It was a number one album and single, as you well know, here in America. Right. And it did well. And we're still in contact today, actually, Arthur. Are you so, really? Yeah, yeah. We've been talking to him about maybe doing something with us. We're not sure if that's going to actually happen. But, yeah, he's a very positive character. Great man. If you're ever playing... Crazy World of a Brown again with him coming on with a fire helmet. I will fly anywhere in the world to hear you play fire to see well, that. We, we've actually rehearsed fire. <laughs> My band's actually rehearsed fire and we've thought of putting Arthur on the screen at the back and stuff. But we'll just see, you know. Maybe when it, um, in uh, 2020, it's the 50th anniversary of ELP. Uh, obviously, I'm going to try and put a show together which will be a bit different for that. And there's a various products and things we've got in the uh, in the works which are being developed now for that date. Maybe um, that's when I'll sort of introduce Arthur into the show and uh, we'll do something a bit different. That would be brilliant. Carl Palmer, by the way, with a new uh, collection out, ELP Legacy. It's Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy Live CD and DVD. The CD recorded live here in New York, the DVD in Miami with notes from you. And as heartbreaking as I am that Greg and Keith aren't here and how much the music meant, and then like a double whammy that John Wetton passes a few yeah. months after Greg. And, you know, I'm looking up at the, at the heavens going, how many bass players do you need up there? You've yeah, got yeah. Greg, John, Ant Whistle, yeah. uh, you know, you've Chris got Squire. Chris Squire, Jack Bruce, like what, yeah. the entire band yeah, is yeah. bass players? Yeah, they collect, he's been collecting them. Well, basically the uh, tribute, it's a tribute DVD was put together for Keith Emerson originally. Uh, Keith Emerson died, as you know, in March of right. 2016. So I decided to do a DVD as a tribute to, to him. And of course that same year Greg died uh, in the December so that's a tribute to both of them. It's a, an, about an hour, 50-minute show. We've got um, Mark Stein singing. From Mark Vanilla Stein, Fudge. Vanilla Fudge, yeah. He's singing on uh, Welcome Back, My Friends and Knife Edge. We've got Steve Hackett 
from Genesis Love comes Steve. in. Love Steve. Plays some harmonica. Steve on, Hackett playing harmonica. Yeah, and, unbelievable as well. On Fanfare for the Common Man and play some guitar, obviously. And then we've got the um, we've got a choir singing on a piece of music called Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a single by ELP, which was banned by the BBC. The, what? Yeah, Wait, I didn't know they this. Said it was religious. It should be in a church. A rock band should be playing it. So, but it's the most classic, definitive you know, British think, song. Yeah. Ever didn't uh, every school kid sing it? And yeah, did. I'm a with you. I'm with you. But anyway, they banned it, so I decided to put it back into the set, and we've got the Ida Choir in Florida singing on it. So uh, that was um, that's a, that's a nice touch. Then there was one wish. Well, one idea that Keith and I talked about using dancers, um, ballet. We figured we might be able to do something at Covent Garden in London with a with an orchestra and have some ballet on there and get them to dance in sections of uh, pictures at an exhibition. It never really happened. We used the we used a choir and we used an orchestra, but we never used dancers. Anyway, on this particular date uh, in Florida, which was June the twenty fourth, I believe, a couple of years back, I got some dancers to come on and contemporary sort of dancers. It were not ballet and uh, dance during um, pictures at an exhibition. So really, it's a kind of it's a tribute to both of them, and and you know. I think that's lovely. Yeah, Carl yeah. Palmer, my special guest here in the studio. They've remastered uh, the Emerson, Lincoln Palmer catalog. Yeah, we've that done well with the catalog. It's great guns. It sounds phenomenal. Yeah. As I've listened to it, it's wonderful. And, you know, as, as part of what we're doing here, like British Invasion, the Beatles Revolution, uh, my producer Andrew is with me. He's a young man. He's a bass player. You know, his first band, they're up and running, 100,000. And Steve Hackett was here. Yes. And we talked so much. He, John Lodge, everybody's talked so much about what the cauldron was like, yeah. whether it was London or Birmingham or Manchester, yeah. about how you all grew in, at the same, it was the most fertile ground of music mm -hmm. we ever heard. Each band pushing each other. Mm. Um, I don't know if I, of all the years I've ever asked you this. What was your first exposure to the Beatles? Uh, my first exposure to the Beatles was actually not seeing them. And I'll tell you what that was. I, I lived about a 15-minute walk from a ballroom called the Plaza Handsworth. And the Plaza Ballroom Handsworth, as I say, 15-minute walk from where I was playing, uh, lived... And uh, the Beatles were playing one night and they were coming in by helicopter, landing on the roof and playing their 45 minute set. Anyway, I never got to see the set because I asked my dad if I could take the night off and we could get a dep. And he said, no, he said, you should always play every night you can. And you can always see the Beatles on television and buy their records. So he wouldn't let me have the night off. I was playing in the local um, Locarno ballroom, which was the other side of Birmingham where I'm from. So I went up in the daytime to um, see if I could see any of the Beatles up there. Obviously, they weren't coming in then. I was a bit, you know, green as it were and right. I didn't realise they're going to be landing on the roof five minutes before they play and only playing 45 minutes so I went up in the afternoon and I knew Mrs Regan who owned the ballroom and I went in and uh, they were bringing in the Vox cabinets, the Vox PA system and there was a basket in the dressing room with their boots and stuff hanging up jackets and that's the closest I ever got to seeing the Beatles really. <laughs> At least get a gig But it was a, it was a, it was a funny insight to seeing them and then uh, Ringo Starr bought a drum set off me and <laughs> Uh, we met once in a in um in uh, Los Angeles in a recording studio. He was in the um, he was in the kitchen at the same time as me, <laughs> making a cup of tea. So we said hi. So I, I think that's one of the better reasons to not see the Beatles is because you had a gig. Yeah, yeah, well, I did. And uh, how well, old were you? Um, I was um, I think I was fourteen, just turned fourteen. 
14 years old and yeah. you could have seen the Beatles but you know what it's the British work it's the work ethic you know if you've yeah. got a gig you don't yeah, take well, off for anything my dad you know he, he didn't he didn't he loved them he thought the Beatles were great we knew all about them and, and uh, but uh, he said you know you should play every night you can play you've got to play it's the only way to get better so that was it you know so, you know, were you a child prodigy? Is it drumming was just something that you were natural to? Um, no, I, I come from a, a family of a lot of drummers. You know, my great-grandfather was a drummer. Uh, my dad was a drummer. My, my younger brother's a drummer. My nephew's a drummer. He's also a pilot, professional pilot now. So there's a lot of music in the family. My great-great-grandmother, classical guitar player. My other grandfather, violin player. Wow. Cello, Royal Academy of Music, all wow. that stuff. So the drums really are just, it's just something that happened. I started on violin. Actually, I started on banjo, ukulele, <laughs> and I went to violin. And really, by the time I was 11, I knew it was drums, simple as that. When you're 11, but the, your speed, your accuracy, the tonality. I mean, it's not just flash. I mean, there's a lot of flash that went into ELP and the things. But, you know, the, the musicality of your drums and your fills, that's what I was always attracted to of, like, playing these off rhythms and these fills. Is it something that came naturally? Or did you work your ass off to no, get no, there? No, I'm, I'm, you know... I wouldn't say to anyone that I'm, I'm a natural drummer, you know. Everything I've got, I've worked for, you know. Nothing has come easy. It did come easy for a little while, but the more you go into it, the less you know, the harder it becomes. It's one of those circles, you know. I remember so, uh, Neil Peart saying that 10 years ago. Said They said, why are you taking drum lessons? Yeah. He said, I always want to take drum lessons. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, yeah, that's the answer. Yeah. Okay, so there's you, there's Neil Peart, there's, there's guys, you know, of the prog world with these incredible kits and playing the most complicated musicals, changing styles and beats every few bars as the music changes. So you tell me, Carl Palmer, what do you think of Ringo as a drummer? Um, you know, I think Ringo did exactly what was needed uh, to be done in the Beatles. Um, he sounded slightly oddball because he was he was a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed set. Uh, so his fills always led from the left around the set, which is well known within the, the drumming sort of community, as it were. So he worked out really well. And he was obviously a, a well-schooled player. He'd, he'd had a, a lot of years under his belt playing. So he sounded pretty good with them. There were a lot of great drummers at that time in bands, you know, all the way through from Mick Avery and the Kinks to whoever you want to name. There are a lot of good drummers in that period. Ringo suited the Beatles. He made his style fit what they did. And, and let's face it, when you've got that writing of, you know, Lennon and McCartney, you know, you can hardly go wrong, can you, really? <laughs> you know, I would say one of the greatest things that he did play uh, was um, Day Tripper, was the opening rhythm to Day Tripper. Well, that was a great rhythm, and uh, I, I must give him that. But when you speak to people, People um, about Ringo, how good was Ringo? People say, you know, he wasn't the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> right, John Lennon was the one who yeah. said that. So, you know, it's a laugh, really. But, um, you know, he's good. He's good. He's no, there's no doubt about that. I'm, You know, I'm not a big fan of that style of drumming because I've never really been into pop music 100%. I love the Beatles. Um, I, I like a kind of a, a more sort of thoroughbred approach, approach than that. But that's just my opinion. It's not to say there's anything wrong with him. Uh, when Steve Hackett was with us and we were talking about, you know, what, uh, how Sergeant Peppers, well, actually, once we get to Revolver and Rubber Soul and Sergeant Peppers, mm. and I said to him, we asked John Lodge, like, do you think that opened the door for the exploration oh, of what wow. came from whether Keith with the Nice and Greg and King Crimson mm. and you from Atomic Rooster to mm. ELP? And he said, you know, and they all kind of said, Andrew, correct me if I'm like that, it 
might have happened anyway, but when the biggest group in the world opens the door, yeah. then the record label goes, what, you want to make a suite, uh, a 40-minute yeah. album suite? Yeah, go ahead. Because yeah. it, suddenly it wasn't crazy. If so, if John and Paul did it, hmm. then when Keith, Carl, and Greg want to do it, hmm. everybody goes, oh, yeah, okay. Hmm. Well, i tell you what, if you want to take that conversation slightly deeper into the music world where we, we all still live and work, when we signed with Atlantic Records here in New York, they didn't think prog music would last more than five, ten years. And after 10 years, they gave Emerson, Lake and Palmer their catalogue back. And really? We've owned, it, we've owned it ever since. Yeah. Wait, wait you got to e ELP's, what, 70? 71? Yeah. yeah. And in 1980, they Brilliant. said they gave it back we've, to you. We've owned it ever since. You've got to understand, nobody thought prog rock would ever last. Yes, it's a, it's a minority in the big picture. We know that metal and that right. kind of speed rock or whatever you want to call it, heavy rock, is definitely you know where radio has been for many, many years and that draw the big crowds, the big festivals and whatever. Prog rock will always be there. Prog rock is a bit like your jazz. Yes. Prog rock's from England. Um, <laughs> but the record companies never thought it would last this long. They never thought that, so they said, "Yeah, you can have it back." So that we we took it, and, <laughs> and I'm God bless you. Thank you, God Mr. bless. Uh, thank you, Mister Hertigan. Armit, Armit. God bless him. By the way, he's no uh, longer with us. Uh, Andrew, uh, life lessons from Carl Palmer: Do well, but do not well enough so that you can get your catalog back for a dollar. <laughs> well, no, I mean we did very, very well on it. It's just that they were, I personally think, short-sighted. Yeah. I mean, because the Beatles are already doing this stuff. We all know what they did, you know. They were already stringing things out and getting quite psychedelic and backward sounds and this and long pieces of music and whatever, whatever. So it was there anyway in the making, and we just took it a bit further. I think what the problem was is they, uh, I think Atlantic at the time, didn't see ELP as a rock band. We didn't play enough blues we were classically driven because we're Europeans, you know, for God's sake. You yeah. Know? We're from England, right? So it's not going to be, it's going to be the choir boy singing. It's going to be, <laughs> that's what it is. And a keyboard, not a guitar. So, you know, none of it added up. And then when you started having these long pieces of in-depth sort of time changes and uh, and sort of weird pieces of music like Tarkas and things, suddenly it's like, mm, yeah, no, this won't be around in years to come. Of course, I'll be playing that tonight. Of At the Sony Theater, by the way. Sony Theater tonight. Carl Palmer is there. Um, Mike Rutherford came here with his band. And we were talking about it. I said, look, I'm thrilled that you have these giant hits that we play all the time. But I go back to Trick of the Tail or listening to Selling England by the Pound. I said, you know, it works. It's musically. And now uh, I'm, I'm rebuying my vinyl, 180-gram vinyl of ELP and Genesis. And it sounds amazing. And I'm falling in love with it all over again. Because you, Carl, and the guys opened the door to classical. You yeah. opened the door to jazz for me. Yeah. I learned all this music that I love. I wouldn't, you know, the music teacher had bad breath mm. and was boring. But ELP <laughs> mm -hmm. is the other uh, way. Now, where did this come from? Now, we, who's if we who, had good breath and if we were interesting. <laughs> but you know, just Tarkus Takata opens mm. up a whole mm. new world to me. We got to, to understand that ELP music was quite eclectic to start off with. It was a lot of jazz in there, bits and pieces, a lot of like fusion. There was folk music. There was classical adaptations. So we really to call us a, a progressive rock band was a bit of a small title, really, because all the hits were folk songs. Celeviv, Still You Turn Me On, From the Beginning, Lucky Man, Footprints in the Snow, 
These are like ballads, three chords. <laughs> There's nothing progressive. They're just great tunes. So, you know, ELP was a bit of a, an anomaly, really, in its, own, in its own world. And then you'd have a great classical piece of music like Pictures at an Exhibition, and we'd take it as far as we could with the latest technology using the Moog synthesizers, which was the instrument of the day, you know. So, interesting band, and I'm very proud that I was in it. It was amazing. Were you a fan of Yes and listening to everything that um, they were doing? I've listened to Yes many, many times. We liked Yes an incredible amount, believe it or not, as a band. We thought, yeah, they got a lot of potential. We enjoyed that vocal part of Yes, which we didn't have in, in ELP. And believe it or not, the first five concerts Yes ever played in the US were supporting ELP. We brought them over here as like a goodwill gesture, you know. Nice. And I knew Steve very, very well because Steve auditioned for the Atomic Rooster way back when. <laughs> But um, you didn't cut it. I passed on him. Yeah. Wow, that's that's impressive. But it wasn't because um, he wasn't good enough. I mean, we were after a slightly different style of playing at the time. And uh, well, look, I ended up in a band with Steve anyway, x amount of years later, called Asia. So the world goes round. Yes, and they're wonderful songs. Is there going to be a tribute to Asia as well, Carl? Are you going to keep that going? I think somehow? what we're going to do is, as you know, and you were there, Ken, last year we did that to show tribute to John Wett, and we will do something. Jeffrey and I have been seriously talking. We are looking at expanding Asia in some way. There's no plans for any recording or any tours or anything right now. It's still on the table. It's still at the draftsman stage, as it were. We're still moving things around and taking a look at what could be done. Um, but I definitely think Asia will continue in some shape or form. Um, whether it's got more players in the group or less players, who knows? I have no idea. But we've decided we want to do it. We felt really good after the Journey Tour last year. We toured with them in March and June and July, as you know. And we were quite surprised, Jeff and myself, how many of the tunes that this young sort of Journey audience actually recognise. Journey are a phenomenon, really, because they, they play to, like, females at 35, 37 years old. I mean, they keep dragging these females into there. It's amazing. And... You know, they play to like between four to like 10, 12, 15,000 people a night. So they're just the, the best at that type of music. And we noticed when we played our hits, like Only Time We Tell, Heat of the Moment, um, Don't Cry, Soul Survivor, the younger people in the audience, and the majority was women, I personally thought, knew these songs as well. So there's definitely something for Asia to carry on doing. Because we always thought we just played to guys, but when we were on the journey tour, there's a lot more women in the audience, and that's unusual. That They're really great songs. They live on the radio still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carl, final thought as we go through this journey of prog rock and, and British music, and it's something young producer Andrew and I talk about he's so he's in the studio you know and they're working on their second album and playing live versus in the studio so the Beatles have been touring with you know the mop tops and that's where that they're the number one band in the world recorded and live and you get to 66 really and they've had it because they can't hear themselves it's just girls screaming yep. like you said as as John said we could just stand there and they could scream and we could leave we don't even have to play it's pointless so, A, they fire the mop tops, get long hair, start going for interesting sounds, writing interesting words, and they stop touring. Um, and that's a question to me, especially for what you were doing with ELP. Some of those, some of those suites, like you said, that pictures at an exhibition, or doing all of Carnival 9. You know, when you do this masterwork in the studio, do you ever stop and say, now, how the hell are we going to do this on stage night after night? Yeah, we did at the very beginning, right up until Trilogy, we would say, how can we reproduce these albums on stage? By the time we got to Trilogy, 
we started overdubbing um, an immense amount to the point we knew we couldn't produce it on stage without extra players. We didn't have MIDI at the time, which, you know... Keyboard, well, you can trigger one or another. Triggers, yeah, so that wasn't available to us. Obviously, now it is, but in that moment in time, it was not there. So we thought, no, we just have to make the best record we can make. And if it means overdubbing this section with three different harmonies on the keyboard that we know Keith will never be able to play, um, we've got to do it, because it sounds better. <laughs> so that's the way it went. And, um, of course, technology caught up, which means you can reproduce it all today. And we did finally get to that stage with, with, um, with MIDI and things but the trilogy was the turning point and I think at the end of the day um, we had a philosophy which was very very simple we would always say this has to sound great this piece of music without any overdubs and without any vocals it's got to nail you as a backing track it's got to be the thing it's got to sound so good when you add some overdubs it'll be another deal that'll be great but then when you add a vocal it'll be even Better. So we always worked on the premise that the backing track had to be golden just for the kickoff, you know. And that was that's how it worked with the LP. Of course, when we started overdubbing, the thing just exploded. But hey, go ahead, Andrew, you went to. I, I just wonder about hearing your album remastered after so many years. Um, how do you like that compared to the original version? Do you see it as like a necessary thing you have to do to sort of to remind people of it? Or is this how you always thought it should have sounded? I think we always thought it should have sounded as it sounded in that particular day when it was released. When you can remaster something and, you know, sort of rebake tapes and then start making better CDs like we did, and then once the CDs are made, that's what you've got then because the tapes usually um, end up sort of just turning into oxidation takes mm -hmm. place, you know. Um, so I think any sort of any remastering does help. Don't forget when you remaster, whatever you do goes over everything. So if you add a bit of top, it goes over everything. If you add some bottom end, it goes over everything. So you have to say to yourself, how good was it in the first place? And my deal on that is, well, we had Steve Wilson come in and mix some ELP. Oh, okay. They're so, brilliant. Yeah, and so he mixed, but, uh, you know, uh, they all say, oh, these mixes are great. So I always say, yeah, they were great, but don't forget they were great anyway. <laughs> they were great to kick off, you know. They were great on the get-go. So, you know, he's just added another, and that's great, because that's something else. So, yeah, I think if you can add or can show a different version, then that's what it's all about. But you have to understand that it's only worth doing it with really good music in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it can be changed and appear as great in a different way. I've got no problem with that. No problem. Jeff Emmerich was up here. Oh, yeah. And I asked him the same question. What do you think about Giles Martin's remix of, of Sgt. Pepper's, the, you know, the remastering? And he said, you know, I, I hate everybody. this coming off as sour grapes, but my only thought is, was the original not good enough? Yeah. Well, the originals are always good enough, you know. That's why these guys want to jump on the back and see if they can improve it. They only want to work on the very best. They're not going to work on crap. Yeah, that's right. So that's okay. That's okay. And, there, I mean, let's be really honest. You know, if we're really honest here, you know, the minute you suddenly stick a new prog name like Steve Wilson onto a, onto the institute, as it were, ELP, the right. beginning of, it also adds a bit more, oh, what's that going to be like, mm -hmm. you know? So there's always that attraction. So um, I can understand record companies wanting to put that forward to artists. Why don't we try this? Because it does act, uh, add a little more cachet, I suppose. Now, when I buy re these albums, I'm buying Genesis or, or ELP or Moody Blues, the name of the person who's remastered it is now on the cover. Yeah. 
You know, and that's been added to, yeah, oh, yeah, and yeah. he's the Genesis well, they guy. Think, they think it's the selling point, you see. That's, that's interesting. Absolutely. Carl Palmer, uh, a beautiful compila- compilation, compilation here of a DVD and CD, Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy. It's a beautiful tribute the to The CD Keith. is different, by the way. The CD was recorded in a different place. It's it was recorded here. Yeah, different tracks on there, which are uh, played by uh, Paul Bielatovich on lead guitar, Simon Fitzpatrick on the bass, and there's some different classical adaptations which aren't to do with the LP. They're just me pushing the envelope a bit further. I mean, basically, with the, with the band, with the Carl Palmer ELP Legacy, what I've tried to do is take... ELP music to a different different uh, genre as it were to a different uh, different level of uh, age group as it were bring it into a new age group and when I say that I'm seeing people at like 35 40 45 at my concerts so I know they've heard it from their dads and now they're coming to see it and making it their own so I've tried to bring this to a, a different different group of people and to do that I did really never wanted to copy what ELP does by having keyboards why when I play with the best keyboard player ever rock keyboard player I think I just wanted to look at it from the point of view of guitars uh, and Chapman stick we use 10 string which produces a lot of uh, synthesizer sounds if we need them I just wanted to see if I could just show how versatile ELP music was just to bring it into a, a, a new a new era you know a new level I love that you did Mars, the God of War, doing yeah. some Holst. And 21st Century Schizoid Man to do that, King Crimson. Well done. Yeah, well, that's because that was the very first piece of music ELP ever played as a group. Funny really? enough, yeah. You played King Crimson. Yeah, when we got together, we said, what shall we play? Being English, we wouldn't just go in a room and jam. So we said, why don't we learn, <laughs> why don't, why don't we learn a piece of music and play it together and see how well we make something sound that's, you know, already written? Um I can relate to that. Yeah, (laughs) I I mentioned Mars the God of War, mainly because it was easy for me, and I could check out how well the other guys played and what they were doing. Anyway, I got a big no down the telephone. (laughs) Um, I don't think so. Okay, fine. Put it on the side there. Then I got the call saying uh, schizoid. And I thought, why the hell do we want to play schizoid, man? Surely we're going to be in competition with somebody like King Crimson. You've left that band. Why would you want to? Yeah, and it was Greg saying, and then I realized that... uh, uh, it was very simple why he made that um, statement was because he had nothing to learn and Keith and I had to learn it. So uh, <laughs> I, got, I, I got Greg down immediately. So that was it. And we learned it. And we played it. And uh, we actually did record it ELP. It's on one of the compilation albums. But we never recorded it all the way up to the uh, unison section in the centre of Suicide right. Man before it comes back into the, the song. Um, but on this particular album, uh, the one, the new release here uh, with Paul and Simon. We play all of it, yeah. Well done. Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy uh, show tonight at Sony Hall. Uh, to find out more and everything that is available, I, I'm told there's a scarf involved now in the pictures that you've oh, done. Oh yeah, we've been, we've been developing the artwork. The two things I've done, um, when Keith died in 2016, I decided to do some artwork as a, and dedicate it to him. So I did. I, I did a piece called Welcome Back My Friends, the show that never ends. I played the piece in the studio and they filmed me playing it and we captured the light, the reflections, the shadows and I did that for him and of course then the same year Greg died so I, I did a piece and I called it Lucky Man I played Lucky Man and we captured that in light 
and then John went and died the January 2017. So I did Heat of the Moment. So I have my Legend series, which is a canvas dedicated to each of these guys. And um, that I thought I thought the art thing was kind of over then. That was it. And then I had this idea. I'd had a piece of artwork called Orcadia. And that was one of my, my very first collection. And I noticed that both of my daughters wanted this piece. And the one daughter's got it on her stairway of her, her house. The other one's got it in the bedroom. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I've noticed that all the sales, when I went through all the sales, as you know, we dedicate 25, 30% to charity, everything we sell. I noticed so many women had bought this or it had been bought by a guy for his wife. And I thought this is quite a feminine piece then. So I spoke to Katie, that's my partner who I've been with many years, and she'd been in the fashion industry. And she said, well, there's quite a few people who um, could print that on a 100% silk scarf. And if you go to the uh, Victorian Albert Museum, go to their uh, gift shop or go to the Royal Academy, go to their gift shop, you'll see that most artists end up putting something on a silk scarf. So I thought I'd make a scarf up for Katie. So I got it made up by Beckford Silk, a company that only do prints on 100% silk. They're the leading people. They supply people like the Victorian Albert Museum, the Royal Academy, and then we realise that this is something we should possibly make. So um, I've gone into the scarf business, to cut <laughs> to a short story, and uh, we sold about 50 of them already, and uh, we're in our second batch now, so it's, it's exciting. It's exciting. I'm buying the 51st right, right now. <laughs> Real, quick story to sum it all up. Uh, this past winter, I'm in London, I like to go for the halls. I'm at the V&A Museum, yeah. and there's the entertainment section. And in one room, and I put the, posted this at Q1043, sitting like 10 feet away from each other, here is a first folio of Shakespeare Five feet away is a giant oil painting of Richard Burton as Richard II. And 10 feet away is the poster for the benefit of Mr. Kite for Pablo Fanke's circus and Harry the Horse dancing the waltz <laughs> and somersaults on solid ground. And I stood back for a second. I thought, you know what? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Shakespeare, Burton, Beatles. <laughs> and you know what? It absolutely belongs yeah, in that room yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all eclectic, but it all works, yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean, really, when you go to any art galleries or museums in uh, in London especially, which are there, they're fantastic. I mean, I'm bound to say that, but they are really good. They are incredible places to see what they do put together as collections, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I think that just sums up the British character, really. <laughs> Keep on rocking. Carl yeah. Palmer, thank you so much for coming Thanks, by. Ken. Uh, find out all the information, carlpalmer.com. Yeah, absolutely. And carlpalmerart.com if people want to take a look at that scarf. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, uh, an interesting ride so far, and I'm enjoying life every day. As Greg wrote, the show that never ends. Absolutely. I hope it never does. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks.